0: who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God's in there. What can be wrong with that? Thank you, Dan, for that prayer. We're going to go see Sandy's dad uh, next weekend um, in Gulf Shores, Alabama, and um, he is quite ill uh, Daryl Arnold uh, has agreed to come over and uh, fill the pulpit, so I uh, appreciate my brother serving us in that way. Reading tonight's passage um, made me think of uh, The Pilgrim's Progress. And that's a, a great Christian classic. Uh, if you've never read it, encourage you at some point in your life to, to get that. You can get it online for free. Uh, Written by John Bunyan, 17th century, he's in prison for his faith and he wanted to write an allegory of the Christian journey, the original, I love the titles from the 17th century, the original title was, The Pilgrim's Progress from This World to That Which is to Come, Delivered Under the Similitude of a Dream, Wherein is Discovered the Manner of His Setting Out, His Dangerous Journey, and His Safe Arrival in the Desired Country. That was all on the cover. So they they weren't big on kind of hooks. They kind of wanted to tell it all to you when you you started. And uh, I don't know if we have that first slide, Bob, if that made it in. Yeah, that's a picture of of Pilgrim. Pilgrim starts out from uh, the city of destruction. And he sets off to journey to celestial city. And he carries a great pack on his back, which is his sin. He meets evangelists along the way who directs him to the shining light, he faces a lot of challenges, he nearly sinks in the slough of despond, uh, where his guilt and sin threaten to undo him, he is almost crushed by the falling rocks of Mount Sinai, he finally makes it to the place of deliverance, where his pack breaks off and his sins are forgiven. But he's not done. He has a long journey. He'll face a fierce dragon and a treacherous river before he makes it to Celestial City. And he doesn't go alone. He has some people that help him, like Mr. Evangelist and Mr. Hopeful. And he has some people that don't help him very much, like Mr. Worldly Wise and Mr. Legality, who has a son named Civility. And they try to confuse him and keep him from reaching his goal. Well, he wrote this book in prison, trying to encourage other believers who were struggling with a vision for the Christian life, and he based his story on Scripture. Paul, of course, wrote his letter to the Philippians from a jail cell as well, and in like Bunyan, he often is reminding his readers that they are on a long and treacherous and wonderful journey. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says this over and over again in Philippians. He says, our destination, our celestial city is the kingdom of heaven, and we're awaiting a Savior who even now is the emperor of all things, and even now is in the process of aligning all things to himself, but we're not done yet. That's our goal. That's where we're traveling towards. That's what we're looking towards. And like Bunyan, Paul knows that the journey from here towards God, towards heaven, towards our future, is really hard. And one of the realities that make it hard are some of the people that we meet on the journey, some of the people that distract us from the goal. And if you've been with us, we've been in Philippians for a while, we've seen Paul refer to some of those. Chapter 3, verse 2, he talks about uh, legalists who are coming into the community and preaching a gospel of Jesus plus, Uh, this idea that, yes you can be right with God by your faith, but you also need to do some things as well. And then now he has another group in mind. He says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. We don't really know who these people are, but they've come into the community and they're hindering the progress of the pilgrims in Philippi. Uh, we know some things about them. They, uh, they have mindset on earthly things. In other words, their values are not like the values of God's people. Their, their belly, their, their desires, their, their lower passions are what they live for. And, and 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 if you if you follow the road thereon, Paul says their end is destruction. He says, if you follow these people, your soul will be destroyed. And that's true of every spiritual journey. There are some influences that can come into that journey that can destroy us. You see a great illustration of this in uh In Homer's The Odyssey, where uh, Odysseus is is on the boat and he's sailing towards uh, the great island where the sirens are. And the sirens are uh, these beautiful creatures that call out with lovely voices and woo the sailors to turn and to follow the voice. Uh, But the sailors don't understand that there's rocks underneath uh, where they're sitting and that if they follow the voice, they'll certainly shipwreck. And Odysseus knows this, and so he tells his sailors, put beeswax in your ears and tie me to the mast of the ship so that when I hear them, I won't steer towards them. I think there's a spiritual principle there that Scripture teaches, is that there are voices, there are influences, there are ideas in the world that can lead us to destruction. Destruction. Now, this is a delicate thing to think about because we don't live in heaven yet. We are citizens of two kingdoms. We live here. We live there. Uh, We're an urban church. One of the reasons people like cities is they're filled with all sorts of different ideas. That's one of the things I love about The city. I I had I was in a book group for a couple of years with some folks from downtown. It was the most wild and radical I mean just a blast. I kept thinking, I've never heard anybody have that belief. (laughs) This is so fun. And I just met with a couple of them Friday afternoon. We were going over something and just totally different ways of seeing the world. That's why you love a city. It's because there's so many different ways of seeing things. So how do you live in that kind of an environment? And not be destroyed by ideas that lead you away from Christ. That's a hard tension, isn't it? I mean, you can you could say, well, I'm just not, I'm just gonna totally pull out. Well, Jesus didn't do that. The believers in Philippi didn't do that. So what do you do? What do you do? You know, first I, I, I think we need to be honest about this. Um even if you're a very intelligent, thoughtful, caring, Christ-honoring person, you're still influenced by the ideas you're around. You can't help but be. None of us is sort of this perfect blank slate where based on our reason and scripture alone, we form views and hold on to them perfectly until the day we die. No, we're all influenced by the shows we watch, the blogs we read, the conversations we have over beers, the jokes we laugh at. It's just being human. So if you're not supposed to just pull away from everything, what what can you possibly do? Well, Paul's going to give an answer in in a moment to that, but but I, I would suggest two things before we get a little further. Let's at least keep thinking. Let's be the kind of people that think critically about ideas and concepts and values and beliefs and don't just accept whatever is thrown at us as truth. And certainly let's not go down the road of, hey, whatever you believe, whatever I believe, it's all the same anyway. That's not love, that's not even real tolerance real love, real tolerance, is to disagree and acknowledge that you disagree and still love the person. See, I, I, I see people abandoning central planks of Christian doctrine without a fight. They just give it up because they read it on a blog somewhere or or something like that and and it never occurred to him that somebody's asked that same question for 2000 years and the church has a few answers would you like to at least hear them before you quit? Let's at least think critically about the challenges to our faith. Now where this gets really subtle and really tricky is when these people Paul's talking about that have a destructive influence on our faith, our our religious. And that gets really hard. It's interesting in Pilgrim's Progress that a number of the characters are wearing religious garb. One of the most dangerous things that can happen on a Christian's journey is that someone like me can get off a little bit and hurt you. We had a, a, a couple in our church we love deeply and have walked with them many years come over Thursday night and say, we just want to talk to you about pairing. And so we uh, we had a great conversation. And before they came, it led Sandy and I to ask this question, why do we believe what we believe about how we raised our kids? <laughs> and so we went back uh, to the early days of our marriage and we realized that there were some things we were taught about parenting that we are thankful for, we believe Straight from God's heart, we believe that those teachings blessed us. But we also look back and see that some of the things we were taught about marriage and roles and parenting and all that stuff caused some destruction in our family. It's kind of painful to admit that. Sitting down with a friend some time ago and he'd been listening to a particular teacher, and I said, what was the impact of that on you? And he said, "Uh, I had a panic attack. I had a panic attack. One One of the things we need to watch is the teaching that we put ourselves under, the books we read. The people we listen to on on the radio, or I guess nobody does that anymore, on the podcast. or, And we need to think critically about those that we do listen to. Think critically about what you hear from me. Make sure that this is the ultimate foundation. Well, Paul has an answer for these pilgrims that are heading towards the kingdom of heaven but are being distracted by people that would destroy their souls. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Christianity is caught as much as it is taught. Jesus says, John 13, I give you an example. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Peter writes the elders in his churches, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, being examples to the flock. Now here's Paul's antidote to the destructive ideas and voices that could lead us astray is to be ser- Influenced by and shaped by and, yes, even surrounded by godly men and women who walk the way of Christ. Now, I don't think he's saying, and cut yourself off from everyone else. There's no way a Christian in Philippi could ever have cut him or herself off from everything else. And that's not what we're asking you to do. But you can't just be shaped by ideas that are contrary to the kingdom worldview and expect it to not do damage on your soul. You also have to balance that with godly men and women who live an example of the Christian life. They need to be investing in you, too. And I think you need to be honest here about the balance of inputs in your life. That's all I'm asking. I'm not going to give you a rule. I don't know what the rule is. I do know if if you binge watch Game of Thrones and make it to church twice a month, you're being discipled by George, whatever, what's his name, the Game of Thrones guy? (laughs) He's discipling you. Should you not watch Game of Thrones? I don't know. I can't. I have nightmares when I watch bloody stuff. I don't know what the Lord's telling you to do. I had trouble with Beauty and the Beast, you know, when the wolves came out. Oh, I hate that scene. Okay. So I I don't do that stuff. I don't know what you should do. I do know you can kid yourself. You know, Paul has this wonderful uh, verse in 2 Timothy where, where he talks about, he says, Well, you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who'll be able to teach others also. It's this wonderful picture of of discipleship where Christ disciples Paul, Paul disciples other leaders with other leaders disciple others. And by the way, young people, when I say the word discipleship, do you hear leisure suit? I mean, is this like a 1970s word? We don't use it anymore. It's not a bad word. Jesus used it. I don't know if there's a better word, maybe spiritual mentoring or something like that. But uh, the Greek word is mathetase. It's in the Bible. I'm going to use it. And I did have a leisure suit. It was uh, light, light blue. I did. I wore it to my high school freshman formal. Um, so anyway, if you would put up that next slide, this is one of the things that Paul encourages us to do so that we keep walking on the road towards a celestial city. It's discipleship. But here's a, a 1970s definition from a guy that discipled me. Discipling others is the process by which a Christian with a life worth emulating commits himself or herself for an extended period of time to a few individuals who've been one to Christ, the purpose being to aid and guide their growth to maturity and equip them to reproduce themselves in a third spiritual generation. And that's what Paul did. Paul poured into Timothy, he poured into others. He poured into the leaders of the Church of Philippi who poured into others. And when he's in jail, he says, guys, look at the example of the people that I poured into. That's how you do this. And one teacher that I had used to say, everybody needs a Paul everybody needs a Timothy. And I know you can get way too structured on this and... In 1979, when I started on this journey, it worked really well because the seniors would disciple the juniors, and the juniors would disciple the sophomores, and the sophomores would disciple the freshmen. And and I thought, well, that's a great model for the church, and we all know that's not how it works. We all know that a lot of discipleship is mentoring back and forth. We all know that younger people can teach older people things. I get all of that. It all needs to be very organic. However, there is a principle here. The people who've walked the road a while pour into people who are a little behind them who pour into people who are a little behind them. You don't have a small group ministry in the early church. (laughs) Sorry. You have people getting together with other people and discipling each other. And it's always intergenerational. You don't have a singles ministry in the early church. You don't have a college ministry in the early church. That would be scandalous to the early church. Why? Because you don't want a bunch of 25 year olds teaching a bunch of 25 year olds how to do life. Sorry, that would have been their approach. You want older people to walk with them as well, and you also want the older people to be influenced by the younger people, so you mix it all up together. That would have been the biblical idea. Do you have a Paul? Do you have a Timothy? If you don't, just start praying. There's so many wonderful godly people in this congregation. Just start praying. Look around. Grab some. I send out a little email each week with a couple questions based on the sermon. You can get together You know, anytime you want with a couple of folks. Dig into the word. Start pouring in to each other. A friend of mine was talking about the sermon tonight, and she said, I, I think what you're saying is you are what you eat. You will become what you put into your mind. You will become the ideas that you embrace. I'll end with a little illustration from a Nathaniel Hawthorne short story called The Great Stone Face. A little boy named Ernst lives in a valley surrounded by high mountains, and the rocks on one side of uh, the mountains resemble the face of a noble man. And legend had it that one day a hero would come into Ernst's little village and, and save the village and bring them into prosperity. It was kind of a prophecy, and the way that they would know that the hero was here was because the hero looked like the great stone face. And Ernst was nobody special. He was a little guy. He didn't have a lot of gifts, and and, uh, he couldn't wait for that hero to come. And, And he just loved to look at that great stone face. And his mom would come out and catch him just sitting on the back porch, just looking up at that great stone face. Ernst would spend hours every week looking at the great stone face. Well, the years go by. The hero doesn't come. Towards the end of his life, a series of heroes come into the village and they're all proclaiming to be the fulfillment of the prophecy and uh, none of them looks like the great stone face. And then a poet comes into town and Ernst thinks, this is it. We've found him. Well, By this time, Ernst has become a little country preacher and he's given a sermon one day kind of in front of the great stone face and the poet comes into the crowd to listen to Ernst preach in the shadow of the great face. And halfway through the sermon, the poet stands up, interrupts, and says, Ernst is the great stone face. He'd spent his lifetime contemplating the noble man, and he became like him. Let's pray.